What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right, what's up and welcome back everyone to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today we have Mark Cicchini. There we go. Mark, thanks for coming back, man. Really excited to have you on and um, you, you actually got some really good feedback on posting about coming on this podcast and some questions that people have. I'm actually shocked. I feel like nobody ever responds to those type of things. I like always want to reach out and be like, Hey, anybody have questions? And then you just have this post that has nobody comment on. You're like, well, that's, that's not that exciting. Yeah, exactly. Well, I appreciate you having me back on Thomas. It's uh, it's been fun to see other ones that you've done with like business owners and sort of founders and what to do. So uh, excited to talk today. Yeah, I think this will be a good one. This is actually, I think there's certain ones that we kind of re-hitting on some similar points that are really important. Um, but this is kind of the first time we've talked about it. So last time you were on, we really talked to just about equity compensation. This one is kind of going to be building off of that. Um, and so it's really preparing for, I think the goal was to be like preparing for an IPO, but I think we're going to kind of take a step back here and talk about a liquidity event. And yeah. so I think the best way to start this is really talking through the different types of liquidity events that exist. And I think naturally when we go through that, talking about dilution is important too, because I think that's something that not a lot of people understand. Yeah, definitely. And I think just given the recent environment that we've been in, there's been a lack of IPOs, right? There have not been many co companies that have chosen to go that route uh, for obvious reasons. There's just, you know, it's a, sort of a tough liquidity market and there's you know, tech, private tech companies have gotten beaten up in their valuations. And I think a lot of people underestimate what it takes to go public too. It takes a lot of money and a lot of effort, a lot of underwriting um, to get there. And sometimes it flops, right? And it's it's sort of, you get one chance at it. Um, so we've seen Instacart recently, we've seen Clavio, you know, we've seen Arm, you know, the chip, chip manufacturer. And so, um, you know, none of them have gone particularly well. And so I think a lot of companies are using that as signal um, to not go that route. But we also see tender offers, which are sort of, more internal offers to buy equity, um, as well as potentially M&A activity, you know, a merger or an acquisition, where if I'm an employee of a company that gets acquired, you know, that still could be a, a massive liquidity event for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go through each one. And I think, I mean, I guess even before we get going, to me, like, these are the exciting parts about equity compensation, right? I think everybody thinks, hey, I got a job, I have equity compensation, this is amazing. But in reality, a lot of that equity compensation never becomes worth anything, right? So you start this job, you feel excited about it, you have NSOs, you're going to wait to exercise them because you have no idea if anything's going to come and then nothing ever does come. And it's kind of like, well, this really sucks because the big reason I took this job is because this was a way to accelerate my wealth building, right? right? But you know that day doesn't always come. And for me, like part of building a business is the fact that like I'm building equity in something that I'm going to be able to sell down the line, which is really valuable. And the only way to mirror that besides investing in stocks is really this whole equity compensation route. So it makes sense why people want to go work at companies where they're paid in equity compensation. Um, 
but let's start walking through different types. You brought up tender offers. Let's, let's walk through what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a big one that was held this year was Stripe's tender offer. And so w- they were in a very unique situation that they'd been around for you know a long time. And there were some options that were coming due. They had to pay tax obligations and uh, RSUs as they were coming to the second trigger of the double trigger sort of clause. And we can talk about sort of the differences between RSUs, NSOs, and ISOs in terms of comp. But really all a tender offer is, is either a group of investors come to a company and say, hey, as part of this you know, capital round that you're raising, we're going to allow your employees and founders to sort of cash out a certain amount of their equity. Usually it's at a preset price. So they do evaluation of the company and then they look at the shares outstanding. Pretty easy to get to sort of a, um, you know, just like a public stock would have a, a fair market value price per share. And then there's always tons of stipulations. It's very specific to the company, but they'll say, okay, if you've been at the company for two years and you're vested, um, you know, we're going to allow you to sell maybe as much as you want, or maybe that you're only allowed to sell maybe 25% of your vested options and shares. Um, you know, there's a lot of different stipulations, but Stripes, you know, was at $20 and 13 cents a share. All their RSUs became double trigger on the same day. Um, and then they were able to either exercise and sell a number of their options or sell their RSUs that had just been released and they get cash proceeds. Um, and it was very structured in the way that happened. Okay. Um, I feel like that's a pretty good understanding of what tender offers are. So let's go through like mergers and acquisitions. What happens there? Sure. So, you know, it's always different. And I think that's always the answer in financial planning is like, it depends, right? It's so super company specific. Um, the one thing I'll point out that I think some people don't realize is that whenever a company raises capital, there's a group of investors that are always preferred, right? So they're preferred shareholders of the company. And so as an employee, I'm not going to leapfrog them in terms of the preference, what they call the preference stack. So if my company gets acquired, you know, they're first going to pay out those investors who are preferred shareholders before any of the excess gets distributed to any of the other common shareholders, right? So they, if, if it doesn't clear the preference stack, um, then there's no, you know, all the common shares are sort of at zero, unfortunately. Um, but there's been a lot of M&A. And I think one of- thing to add here. Just one quick thing to add here right at that point is this is why a lot of people say, hey, business owners, if you're planning to scale and sell, you want to be a C-corp is because with S-corps, you don't have this treatment. And so investors don't like to invest in businesses that they don't really get that preferred classification. Yep, exactly. And, and having the different sort of share classes and stuff like that. But I think what we've seen more popular, in, especially in the tech world, is sort of the, what they call aqua hire, right? So an acquisition and hiring. So you're, you're acquiring the company, um, you're potentially paying out the founders or the, you know, the preferred investors uh, up to a certain amount. And then you're also hiring the talent and acquiring the IP, right? The intellectual property. So we've seen that as sort of an alternative to some of the other exits, right? So when they say exit, it's just a matter of how are we exiting this company? Is it an acquisition, an IPO? Are the founders cashing out from the existing investor group and just handing over the reins? Um, but often that's also at a set price. And sometimes it's either all equity and all equity transaction, where if I'm an employee, I just get more equity in the new company or I have my existing equity replaced with equity in the new company. Um, and it, al- it also could be a mix of cash and equity. So they're giving you a cash payout for your old equity at a certain price. And then you're also getting equity in the new company. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of unlucky situations happen in mergers. Like I, I've met with a lot of different people who they were at a business that was doing really well. It got bought by a bigger business, almost all of their equity rolled into it. And then the companies dropped 90% in the last two years. And, you know, one person I sat down with, I think their equity was worth like 
12 to 14 million and now it's worth like one and a half. And obviously they didn't really have the chance to sell there, but for some of the higher ups at these companies, you know, you do get a little bit of negotiating here. Like one of the people I met with was the CEO of that old business. Yep. You know, it is a pretty big gamble to say, Hey, I'm going to roll all of this into the next one when you've already basically won the, you know, wealth building, I don't know, competition or journey, however you want to say it. Like you really want to think through those things. Agreed. And I always uh, encourage my clients to not look at a, a chance at any liquidity as, you know, not don't look a gift horse in the mouth, because I think particularly nowadays, it's those those events may be few and far between. And there's just no telling what will happen in the future. Right. It's always hindsight is the best, obviously, vision. But, you know, you could have a situation where a company goes to zero. Right. And you had a tender offer opportunity a year or two before that and you chose to not sell anything. I mean, that's just the worst case scenario. Right. So I think looking at each opportunity, not as necessarily a chance to liquidate everything, because then you might have some re regret, you know, about doing that if this company goes crazy. But there's just so few and far between. And we may get back to kind of the um, zero interest rate environment, maybe not as much as we did in 2021, where everything was going crazy. But I think using each liquidity event as a chance to take some chips off the table is just smart from a financial planning and liquidity standpoint. Yeah. And it's one of the hardest things to do. And, and I fully understand that, right? Like I work with a bunch of people in equity compensation who are like, they have RSUs, they have ESPP. They're also buying the stock with their own money. And it's like, you know, you want to have a good allocation. I get it. You believe in the company, but you also want to be smart about it. And I think this is where you like set rules, right? right. Like I have a client who has millions of dollars of Bitcoin and it's really hard to sell, right? Because it starts to go down and you're like, whoa, 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 don't want to sell because it's going to go back up. It starts to go up and you're like, whoa, 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 don't want to sell because it's going to keep going up. You right. need to basically like set some, you know, I'm going to sell one a month or I'm going to, you know, every year I'm going to, you know, in the middle of the year, in the end of the year, I'm going to sell X amount regardless of what's happening. Because if not, there's always going to be an emotional reason why you won't sell. Agreed. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think I mean, one thing. Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, going back to the tender offer, um, some companies kind of do these yearly, right? Like this is basically what, what SpaceX does, right? They have twice a year where you always know that you can sell. I don't know. I think the price is like 80 some dollars a share right now. But that's like, that's sometimes common at really strong companies. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's a lot of, you know, we could have a whole podcast on like, on like the secondary market opportunities that are out there and all these special purpose vehicles that are trying to buy companies like SpaceX. And so I always advise my clients, like, be careful sort of which company you go through to, to broker this transaction. Or, you know, if it's an internal tender offer, obviously, that's the most secure, it's the most known, you have the most transparency into what the valuation they're using to get to that price point. And, you know, the board and the company has approved it, right, or else it wouldn't be happening. I think that is the most secure guaranteed close close to guaranteed right if the board approves it it's through the company they're establishing the price and the valuation based on the 409a or whatever the sort of financing round is um as opposed to going to a secondary or third party market and saying okay this is either to a direct buyer which is the second best option or through a special purpose vehicle or sort of a forward contract you can get into sort of a, a slippery slope there with how you get rid of your equity yeah Definitely. Okay. Well then let's go to the most exciting one. It feels like is, you know, the IPO, um, walk us through what that is, what it looks like. And then maybe that's when we'll start to talk through, you know, maybe some of the rules, right. Of like, typically when can you sell you know, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the I, classic IPO is initial public offering. It's when the company goes from being private to public. And so, you know, on one day or a select date after they go through a number of things like underwriting with a investment bank, 
they file an S1. There's a lot of things that happen. Again, we can have a whole other podcast about that. But it's really just taking the company from being a privately held company with founders and investors and shareholders and different class shares to a fully public company with one class share, typically just a common share. Um, it cleans up the cap table. It makes everyone sort of equal. It sets a fair market price. Um, there's a lot of things like audited public financial statements, right, that you have to do then once you're public going forward. But it, in, in the most reason people do it is because of access to capital, right? As soon as you go public, it opens up uh, enormous, you know, funnel of capital to the company uh, without having to give away, you know, sort of private dilution and that sort of thing in, in, in previous rounds. Um, so I think as, as an employee, that's sort of the dream exit scenario. In some cases, obviously, it can go poorly. We've seen like Blue Apron was a very bad IPO scenario for employees because um, it kind of fell off a cliff shortly after and during the lockup period. But um, but yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of the rules and challenges for um, for employees who go through this. Yeah, I think, you know, it's always so interesting to me. It's like the biggest goal of everybody is to be at a company that IPOs. But then it's like for me as an advisor, it's like the biggest no-no to me is investing in companies right after IPO. I always try to find the statistic and there's never a good one. But I think it's like something like 80% of companies like never reach their IPO price again or something like that. It's a really yeah. high statistic. And if you look back at all of the big companies, like, I mean, right, like Peloton IPO'd pretty much right around COVID. Everybody thought it was going to be the best thing ever to buy. And, you know, little did everybody know that everybody else thought the same thing. Like you were not some really incredible person to say, gyms are closed. People are going to bike at home. This is going to be the best stock of the decade. Yep. Like it's really hard to nail these down at IPL. Agreed. Agreed. And, and, and you're often right. I think there's there can be a lot of craze around IPOs from an, from a retail investor standpoint. Um, but from an employee standpoint, obviously, there's a lot of build up to it. And I think like Instacart is one that I'm working through with a couple of clients right now. Um, they had to choose a tax selection, right, for their RSUs that were going to be, be double trigger. Right. So if you have RSUs in a private company, often they're they're granted to you, they vest, but then they're not taxed until this second second trigger happens, which is typically a liquidity event. So the company said, well, you can do 22%, which is the standard supplemental withholding rate, or you can bump it up to 37%. And then they go public and there's the confetti and everyone's on the New York Stock Exchange floor, but you don't get to sell, right? There's a lockup period, typically for up to 180 days or six months, where you just flat out can't sell your shares. Um, they do that to avoid a, a crashing in the price right after IPO. Um, and there's a lot of stipulation. Sometimes it's three months, um, which is a little bit shorter lockup period. And I think a key distinction between an IPO and a uh, direct listing is that there is no lockup period with a direct listing. Uh, so Coinbase was a good example of that. Coinbase was a direct listing. They did not go through the traditional IPO process. Um, so there was a set price at, at open and it ballooned up to, I think, over $300 a share. Um, and a lot of people cashed out. You know, I had a former colleague who cashed out to the tune of $20 million, his family set for life. He chose to not speculate on the future of the company, I think. A lot of people chose to speculate and say this is going to be the next thousand dollar per share stock. Um, it, it can only go to the moon from here. And obviously, we saw what happened. Um, it went all the way down to, I believe, fifty dollars a share within a year and a half. So, a lot of regret for folks who didn't sell. Um, obviously, the stock has roared back this year, and um, you know we'll see what happens with this crypto bull market. But, uh, but yeah, just a couple of scenarios that can play out. 
Yeah, I think the double trigger RSUs is a really great thing to bring up because I think most people here have just RSUs and they're at a public company and it's pretty simple, right? The time they vest, right? Taxes are due, you move on, great. But in private companies, if that was the case, it would really suck because you might just be paying tax liabilities for equity that never becomes worth anything, which is where this double trigger RSU idea came about is, well, hey, one trigger is vest. Second trigger is like that liquidity event, you know, IPOing, et cetera. But you're right. It becomes an interesting planning opportunity for thinking about the taxes because if it vests at IPO date and it's $100 a share, and then six months later you can sell it at 40, well, hey, you know, that's not the most ideal situation for you at all. And so you started to bring up like, you know, picking the, the lots. Yeah. Um, or, you know, whatever the price is, like, how did you think through that with a client? Like, I think let's, you'll make this applicable for people listening. How do you think through that? Yeah, great question. I think, um, you know, using Stripe as another good example of this year, you know, there was, I worked with a lot of employees who were early to mid-stage employees of the company. So once you pass a certain point of company stage, you're only pretty much granting RSUs at that point. Um, you know, many start to then re reissue NSOs and ISOs, but uh, for, for early to mid-stage employees, if they had exercised ISOs or incentive stock options, which have the bargain element for AMT or alternative minimum tax, they had this sort of very low basis, which was their um, their their strike price or their you know their their exercise price, and then the fair market value, which they exercised those ISOs. That's kind of the second stage in the timeline, and then ultimately the sale price. So there's kind of three stages in that timeline, and if you sell two years after exercising one year, I'm sorry, two years after grant, one year after exercise. That's long-term capital gain treatment um, or a qualifying disposition. And so if you had AMT that you paid, that results in an AMT credit. And so that credit can be recaptured to the extent that your federal tax exceeds your AMT tax. I know we're getting very technical here, but I think it's important. So when we had this tender offer, we had we, we knew all the facts, right? We knew all, all the past exercise events, at which prices those happened at. Now we had the fair market value, which they were going to be able to sell at. And so we could say, in order to recapture as much of that AMT credit this year, we can look to sell kind of the worst tax optimized lots from a federal perspective, because that's going to make our federal tax as high as possible and our AMT tax as low as possible. So that delta between those two could be recaptured in terms of AMT credit recapture. So complicated concept. By worst, you mean what's the lowest basis? Lowest basis. Exactly right. So they would be federally the, the least tax efficient. Um, because they, you know, they're still a long-term capital gain, which is great, but they're the most long-term capital gain. So they're pushing your federal tax higher. Whereas your AMT basis is set higher because you exercised at a certain price that was above your, your strike price. And so that's where that sort yeah. of, is. you have to run those side-by-side -side calculations and see which lots might be most beneficial in this particular year in which the liquidity event happens. And I mean, if, if your assumption is the stock price is going to keep going up at some point, you're going to have to sell low basis stock anyways. I guess right. maybe, you know, if you're going to do any donating, this low basis stock might be uh, a good option for donor advised funds. But in general, you know, this is really different than like, hey, you know, I, I don't know about my company. I want to exercise, you know, just right. to have some exposure. I'm going to do highest cost basis so I don't trigger AMT. It's very different than now we're selling. We know we have a sellable stock. We have tons of options, RSUs, et cetera. Well, hey, we might as well start with the lowest ones for a bunch of reasons, honestly. Exactly. And, and it really all has to happen within a, like a, a comprehensive tax projection. It's easy to kind of look at the lots and say, okay, what if we sold this? And what if we sold that? 
but you have to factor in your employment income for that year, other investments that you might have outstanding. If you have business income or 1099 income, like how is all that going to interact with your federal tax and your AMT tax so that you can get to a good number and then dictate your strategy based off that? And you can make multiple scenarios. Obviously, that's sort of the best thing is to know with eyes wide open, like what those strategies might be and what those outcomes might be. Um, but the one thing we haven't mentioned is, say, for example, you came on when the company was QSBS eligible, you may choose to not sell certain shares because maybe they're four years, right? Maybe maybe you just wait one more year. Obviously, there's price risk to doing that. But maybe if you just waited another six months or another year and you get that five-year holding period for QSBS, that's worth kind of the, the risk of waiting. So we've had that happen with a couple of folks where they want to leave those QSBS eligible shares um, intact and then sell something else, which they'll be happy with the proceeds from. Yeah. And I mean, friendly reminder for everybody, like you have to be at a company pretty early on for QSBS eligible shares, but you also have to own them, right? So like you have to own them for five years. So that's why a lot of times exercising those ISOs early does make sense. One, it helps on the AMT side, but two, you start to own those shares that might be QSBS eligible down the line. But if you're a later employee, you probably don't have very much there. And I also think this is a caveat too, that a lot of the people that I've met that have equity compensation live in California and right, QSBS is not actually recognized for California state tax. So this is yep. something I see people miss is, you know, they might be able to sell $5 million of stock and they're like, well, no federal capital gains. Great. But you still have 12.3% or 13.3% in California that you do need to plan for. Yep, exactly. That's a, it's a huge call out because that can still be, you know, uh, 10 to 13% for the highest tax bracket, right? 13.3%. That can be an enormous because um, California also doesn't distinguish yeah. between, capital, between capital gains and ordinary income, right? So um, that could be a significant chunk that's still payable, um, even for QSBS that's avoiding federal um, cap gains. Definitely. So um, we kind of hit on this, but not exactly. But like, you know, going through the types of equity, you know, what shares do you sell first? You know, if you're not going to sell all of them. Yeah, great question. I think um, RSUs naturally are probably the lowest hanging fruit, right? Because as soon as they vest, you're paying the taxes whether you want to or not. And so there's not a lot of benefit to holding them from that point forward. Obviously, if you continue to hold them and the price appreciated and you sold for one year later, you know, you get long-term capital gains and everyone's happy. But there's just no there's just no guaranteeing that the price will go up from there. And so there's really it's like purchasing the, the stock again at that point in time. Basically, you're sort of resetting your basis and you're you're more or less speculating on the future of the company um, at that point. So I tend to sell RSUs first. And then from there, it depends on the date at which you exercise your NSOs or ISOs. I think the nice thing in some tender offers and and liquidity events is that they say you can exercise and sell right away um, versus exercise and hold your NSOs. Um, And the reason you might do that is because the NSO is going to be ordinary income from the strike price up to the fair market value at, at the date of exercise. And then beyond that would be capital gains. But again, you're sort of speculating on will the price go up from there, right? And will that will that be a, a good strategy to hold NSOs long-term? And did you have withholding when you exercise those NSOs? It's kind of taking care of the big portion of the tax hit. Um, and then from there, ISOs, you know, always dependent on qualifying disposition versus non-qualifying or uh, disqualifying disposition. So when did you exercise? When were you granted them? And then how will the rest of your capital gains and your tax return interact with the ISOs that you're now considering selling. Yeah. And I think a couple of things to hit on here is like one with these RSUs, make sure you are looking at the tax impact here. Like we have a client who 
Um, he gets like, you know, a million dollars of comp a year and like 60% is RSUs. Yep. He was short like 140,000 on withholding for his RSUs. Like that's something you want to be aware of because you don't want to go file your taxes and all of a sudden be like, what's going on, especially because he held those shares. Yep. So you need to make sure that you have the liquidity to handle that because otherwise, you know, penalties, the IRS add up pretty quick. And also you might have to sell when the stock is now down 30%, right? Like that's not something that you want to have to worry about at that period of time. Yep. Um, so that was a big one for me. And I think the other one here is just like really being mindful of all this. Like these are really great times to one, do, you know, use a donor advised fund in these big years and donate shares, you avoid the capital gains, you get a deduction against income. And then also looking for tax loss harvesting opportunities as the years going up to this, right? Like a lot of people hate tax loss harvesting because they just feel weird about selling at a loss. But if right. you have opportunities for years ahead of time to sell and grab losses and bank them for this year, it's actually going to be super impactful. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of tax strategies for, leading up to a liquidity event, some of which would start all the way back when you were granted the shares, right? You could do the 83B election. If you're, you know, sort of in that realm, you could shift um, shares into a trust, right? To get them out of your estate. You could do any sort of number of charitable planning, you know, initiatives, whether it's staff or, or CRUD or CRAT, any of those things. You could defer the capital gain into a qual qualified opportunity zone. I mean, there's a lot of things. If you're looking at a, a the year of a liquidity event as like a massive capital gain year, or massive ordinary income year, there are a lot of things to plan around that. Some of which I think are less return on hassle than they might be worth in some cases. And they don't necessarily align with your financial goals. <laughs> they may be just the best tax savings uh, methodology, which I don't think, I think those two should should not necessarily be uh, prioritized the same. But to your point, it, it really starts up leading up to the equity event and saying like, let me get my financial house in order. How am I viewing this liquidity event? Is this like a once in a lifetime thing that I probably won't get again? Is this an IPO? which becomes more clear, but more risky. Um, and then how much do I want this to be a portion of my net worth, right? I think you, there's a tax tail that can wag the dog and then there's the balance sheet composition and concentration. A lot of my clients chose to say, you know, here's for Stripe, for example, here's the concentration Stripe mix up of my net worth today. Uh, maybe it's 80%, right? Some of my clients were 80, 90%. And I want to get down to maybe 20 to 25%, which is a little bit more tolerable in terms of my speculation on the company going forward. And then I had one of my biggest clients just go down to 15%, you know, and that was a million multi-million dollar windfall. And he knows that he's going to be pretty much set for a long time um, and diversify that into other holdings and assets. Yeah. I think one good strategy here to think about is one, I just see it so common that people don't want to sell and I get it right. Like there's just this whole, like, you know, what if I miss out on this extreme wealth that I could have had? There's also the other side, like, what if I ruin my wealth because I took too much risk on something that I've, you know, I've already made it. And I yep. think a really good strategy is how much do I need to sell that I never need to save again, right? Like that you're in that coast fire idea where like, yep. Hey, if I never saved again, based on our goals, I'm set. I think you should start there, right? If that means you have to sell 50% of your stock, but you know, financially I'm set for good. And the rest of it can be like my risk on play. Great. If it's 20%, 30%, like great. I, I definitely think the goal should be, you know, within a few years, definitely having it be under 50% of your net worth, um, yep. probably even preferably closer to 20 to 30 at the most. Yep. But this is kind of where you fine tune it with your financial advisor and say like, what am I comfortable with? Cause you also don't want to be the advisor that says sell everything. And then, you know, they resent you because of this happened. <laughs> like you need to say, here's what, here's what, you know, 
is financially wise, but this might be the, you know, the, the low risk play. And I get that not everybody wants that. I wouldn't want it either. If I own right now, if I had SpaceX stock and it was 80% of my net worth, I would not sell 70% of it. I wouldn't, right. I know for a fact I wouldn't, so I wouldn't sit down and tell somebody they have to do that either, but you do need to educate everybody and think through the, here's the risk, right? If this does go to zero, you're basically back to where you were 20 years ago, net worth wise. Yep. If you sell 50% and you know this blows up, you're still going to be really wealthy because you still have a ton of that stock. And if it goes to zero, you're still totally fine because you sold enough. Like That's how you, I feel like you find that middle ground. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I think you have to assign purpose to the proceeds, right? I think that's when, when I've seen the most success is when somebody says, you know, okay, I'm going to be okay with selling this amount and here's what I'm going to do with it. Even if it's just plowing it back into my portfolio for the long term, I, I think that's enough of a reason um, to de-risk, but also, you know, here's my house down payment fund. Here's my charitable fund. I'm going to front load the next, you know, 10 years of charitable. I'm going to buy my parents, you know, a, a vacation home, whatever it is. Um, you know, I think people start to light up when they consider the possibilities and I also think, you know, Jeff Bezos has a great, you know, regret minimization framework where it's like, if I'm 80 years old, looking back, which will I regret more? Uh, will it be selling or will it be holding? And even if it goes to zero, right, am I going to be regret be able to live with that? And I think it's just so everything is so um, up to chance in this world that you really can't guarantee that that's that company is going to continue on the trajectory. It could take one scandal, whether it's a financial scandal or some sort of you know, um, trade secrets or antitrust. I mean, the government shuts down, you know, mergers and acquisitions all the time or an IPO goes sideways, you know, all the SPACs that really, really flopped and did not do well. You just can't say my company is going to be different this time because we just don't know. Yeah. yeah and I love that idea of the, the tie the gold to it, right? Like I had a client who the, the same one I was talking about owns a ton of Bitcoin and it was hard to get him to want to sell any, but he knew he wanted to buy a condo. Interest rates are 8%. He want, What he was going to buy is not is way more than what his income afford, but not what his net worth could afford. Easy way to sell enough was to just buy the condo in cash. And you know that made him excited to do it because it, this big life goal was now accomplished. He doesn't even have to worry about the money side of things because still owns plenty of Bitcoin, but now also has a ton of equity and no monthly payment minus property taxes on where he lives. Yeah, exactly. And um, one other thing I was going to add really quickly is like, I hope the last couple of years have been a, a sort of a learning lesson for a lot of the, particularly the tech community and just looking at companies that we, we thought were really going to be these, you know, not only unicorns in the private world, but then go on to be these public companies that went to the moon. Um, so many of them, you know, were down, you know, 90 to 95% post IPO. And you just, again, I, I really feel for those people who held post IPO and decided to not, you know, sell anything. But I think the way I would encourage people to look at is what was my original grant price, right? If I was granted these shares when the stock was a dollar and now it's IPOing for $80, I need to realize like how much of an increase that is. And that's a once in a lifetime sort of windfall that I could generate based on going from a dollar to $80. Yes, of course, if it went from 80 to 300, we'd all be sad for having sold anything. But to realize that that increase that you've, you've already experienced is, I think, is key. And I think people oftentimes forget that they're still getting RSUs and other equity compensation. So right. if the company's still going to blow up and really, really grow, then you still have exposure to that, right? You don't have to hold all the old stuff when you have exposure coming down the line. Good point. Right. Um, okay, cool. So let's kind of talk about I think we've really hit on handling the emotions and decisions, but let's kind of hit on like how to approach the liquidity event, 
things to be planning for and thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you have to really sit down and look at all the facts. Um, each company's liquidity event is going to be very unique. And I think having, uh, I think one of the best things you can do as somebody who has equity is just have a really detailed and buttoned up accounting of what you hold, right? So whether it's Encarta or Shareworks or Pulley, or if you're using another app to kind of filter in your equity transactions, just knowing exactly what you have, when it's been exercised, the implications of where it's at now, like the current 401 evaluation, when you exercise, like all that will just be really useful information to when you strategize for the liquidity event. Um, once you have sort of the price that you're sort of willing to, to, to sell at or that the company is offering at, then you have to sit down and say, okay, if I sold each one of these tranches, what would be the outcome and how would those things interact with each other? So there's some mod great modeling tools out there. My company has some um, internally as part of our dashboard and just saying, okay, what if we exercised and sold at IPO? What if we exercised 50% and sold at IPO? Um, we have to factor in that lockup period because again, the IPO could go fantastic for the first month and then fall off a cliff. And unfortunately, you just have to watch that all happen. Uh, which is not a, a fun feeling for anyone not, be, not to be able to sell. But I think really talking to an advisor, whether it be a financial advisor who works with folks in the tech community, a tax advisor, someone who knows you intimately, that can do not necessarily a full comprehensive financial plan before you make a decision, but just have all the facts, whether it's your balance sheet or investment allocation. Because to your point earlier about being overexposed to a company, you know, you work there, your equity is there, your ESPP is there, maybe your 401k is even invested in some of the um, you know, tangential things in the company. Um, your income is tied to that, your benefits, all these things are really tied to the, the success of the company. And you might even have outside investments that are, you know, very uh, similar neighbors to the company, like their public counterparts, for example. So just figuring out your true exposure and then figuring out how you want to reduce that uh, after the liquidity event happens and just having a plan and being able to execute it on it with um, eyes wide open. Yeah, do you see that people have the opportunity to sell pre-IPO? Like we know IPO is going to be coming next year. Do you see often that people have the opportunity in that year ahead of time? Or when does lockup period typically start and go through? Yeah, good question. Um, I think a lot of companies nowadays are really locking down their cap table pre-IPO. And so, you know, I could enter into some agreement with um, a secondary market company or sort of a forward contract that says, you know, even though our, our IPO is slated for next year, I want to try to sell now. And you could certainly do that. The company would have to approve it in most cases, which is always tricky. A lot of company boards will just say, absolutely not. You know, you're not allowed to do any third party transactions. Um, Andoral Industries is a good example of one that just, even though there might be companies willing to connect you with a private buyer, if you brought that to the company and the board, they would just vote it down. Um, so you wouldn't be able to go through that legally. Um, a lot of companies have right of first refusal too. So if you were to try to transact with the company's equity before IPO or liquidity event, they have a right of first refusal to buy that back from you um, to keep their cap table relatively clean. Um, but there are a lot of secondary opportunities now. I think there's, like I said, special purpose vehicles that want to get a portfolio of these private companies together and they might be able to provide you with liquidity. You could take a loan against it. Um, I've even seen clients do family loans and i probably wouldn't recommend it in most cases for obvious reasons. Anytime you get family uh, messed up with your finances, it can be messy. But to say somebody, hey, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or aunt and uncle, I would like to have some cash to buy this house, but my equity is completely liquid. We're forecasting this liquidity event next year. It's almost guaranteed. Um, can we do a promissory note until that happens, right? And you have to have a really good relationship with your family to, to do that. But I've seen it work successfully. And you have to just document it properly. 
um, and make sure that that's all buttoned up. And, and, you know, the idea is to pay them back or actually give them the shares when the company goes public. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's a common question I hear from people is just like, you know, I get the lockup period. Can I sell before? And that's what I've seen too, is most times there really isn't an option to do that. And it's funny. A lot of people think it's like kind of unfair that they can't sell over those six months, but like it does make sense, right? Like if you could, and you know, the price, everybody would be selling right then, which would drive the price down even more, which would uh, definitely throw off the market. But th these yeah. are things that you really do want to think through and have a plan around. I think it's hard, um, you know, planning for what that looks like in six months, right? Because if it's dropped 50%. Are you going to sell? You know, I don't yeah. know. It really depends on the person, but I think the, the common misconception people have here is like, oh, well, it's down 50%. I'm going to wait for it to get back to the IPO price. But like, like what we talked about in the beginning, there is absolutely no guarantee that's ever going to happen. And it's a dangerous game to anchor back to some price that might never have been the fair market price for it ever again. Exactly. Exactly. And I think there's, you know, you could do complicated hedging against the, the position by, you know, putting in different sort of derivative products and saying, okay, well, who's the nearest neighbor for this company from a public standpoint that I could go and hedge against. And, you know, in most cases, unless you're sort of one of the original founders or someone with an enormous position that can go to an institutional trader and say like, can you structure an option strategy to hedge against this position until the lockup period ends? Right. That's, that's one way to do it. You could collar this, the position, you could put a straddle on, um, but those things can be very complicated and it's like, what's the, what's the cost benefit of doing that? Um, and also oftentimes what we did mention is sometimes the investor group or whoever's taking the company public may go to the employee base and say, before we actually list publicly officially, we're going to give folks an opportunity to sell at this price before we go public. That's less common. Um, but again, I, I think these liquidity events don't often get lumped super close together. So for example, if you had a tender offer last year. Um, the chances of you having another liquidity event this year, unless it's a regular annual thing for that company are fairly small. Um, but if we see interest rates get cut and money starts to flow in venture capital again, we could see a lot more companies jump at the opportunity to go public. There's a lot of late stage companies that are just itching at the opportunity to go public in a better sort of environment that we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So it seems like, I mean, the summary of this is plan for it, understand what the liquidity event is, understand, Hey, like, what is the tax impact? Where are you going to sell first and understand like, what is going to be your goal on selling, right? Like, don't just come into it and be like, well, I guess we'll just see what the price is. And then at that, we're going to decide because there's probably, if, it, if it's going up, you're not going to want to sell. If it's going down, you're not going to want to sell, like really come up with a plan around this. Um, yeah. any other closing thoughts that you have? No, no, I think we covered a lot of um, a lot of the basics and a lot of the sort of um, things to think about. I think every situation is so circumstantial and specific to, to that specific company. Um, but I think, you know, just a cautionary tale. I think there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of people who have held and really regretted holding. It's not to say that you should just sell indiscriminately and, and, and sort of be jumping at the first opportunity for liquidity because that can come back to bite you. Um, I will say don't put too much weight in analyst ratings either. You know, if an analyst is underwriting a deal or if you see all this news about Instacart or Clavio or all these things, no one really has the crystal ball. And so don't, I wouldn't take any of the analyst reports as gospel. I wouldn't, you know, put too much effort into modeling the company and saying, what are the discounted future cash flows? Um, you know, you really have to sort of look at it as in a vacuum and say, 
what's my circumstance and then how am I going to play this for my financial future and be okay with all outcomes and just go into it with eyes wide open. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Mark, thanks for coming on, man. Um, before we go, let everybody know best places to follow you. Yeah. Thanks again, Thomas. Um, best place to follow me is, um, on X or formerly known as Twitter at Mark Cicchini, C E C C H I N I. Um, also on LinkedIn and have a link tree on my, uh, Twitter page as well. You can also find us, um, compoundplanning.com, uh, C O M P O U N D planning.com. Perfect. Well, Mark, appreciate the time. Thanks for educating everybody on, you know, what it's like to go through an IPO or really any liquidity event. And uh, everybody, thank you for listening. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and we will see you back next week. Thanks, Thomas.